Welcome to the weekly podcast channel for the Wilmington Church of Christ. We hope that this channel inspires and encourages you to take the gospel to all people, transforms hearts to be like Christ, and trains disciples to make disciples. For more information about our church, please go to wcconline.org. Enjoy the message. Daryl Davis is a blues and R&B American musician who's played the piano with musicians like Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, B.B. King, and Bruce Hornsby. But as great as a musician as Daryl is, he may be an even greater reconciliation minister. In 1983, he began a journey of meeting and interviewing KKK leaders and asking the question, why do you hate me if you don't even know me? And over the course of the last 40 years, Daryl has befriended and led between 40 and 60 KKK leaders out of the Klan, where they've given up their organization and giving up their robes. He's collecting robes over the last 40 years of KKK members. Because Daryl showed the love of Christ, he was able to break through hatred, bigotry, ignorance, and racism. We're going to come back to Daryl's story in a little bit later as we examine the question today, what does the Bible have to say about Black Lives Matter? One of the responsibilities God has given us, the church, is that we must be uh, able and willing to speak the truth in love. And sometimes the truth can hurt people's feelings. That's why we have to do it with gentleness. And sometimes truth can offend people. But God said we are commanded to teach truth and live truth, trusting Him every step of the way. Racism, we would all agree, is a terrible sin. And it's most often based around ignorance. Not stupidity, but ignorance. Racism, the idea that one person is superior to another person based on their nationality or the color of their skin, is not found in truth. So as we look at that question today out of the Scripture, I would only ask that you give me grace and pray for me while I do it. I thought when I initially had this question given to me that um, I was very capable of preaching and teaching about this question, but as I talked with members of our congregation, as I did more studying, uh, the more I found out, the more my eyes were open, the less I felt that I was capable. So if you wouldn't mind continuing to pray for me, I would appreciate it. One Italian preacher said he loves preaching at black churches because black churches give feedback during the sermon. They'll shout out amen or preach it brother or keep going and he hears verbally the feedback he gives uh, is given to him as he preached and he said one time he was preaching at a black church and he was doing terribly and there was nothing but silence coming from the congregation. He said there was silence and he was sweating profusely. And finally, one of the Christians in the back broke the silence and stood up and said, Help him, Lord Jesus, help him. Now, I know, I know some of you have been wanting to say that to me for a long time. But if you would, if you would just pray that in your minds, help him, Lord Jesus, I would really appreciate it. Because what I want to do is what I want to do is what I want God to do is take these words that I'm going to say from the scripture. And we need to be in prayer that he takes these words and he installs them into our minds and into our hearts so that we can have our eyes open, that new seeds of faith will awaken within us and that we will become even more like Christ than we were before and that we would have a deep 
deeper understanding of what the Bible teaches about Black Lives Matter. Now, the Bible doesn't use the word racism or mention the phrase Black Lives Matter, but racism is found all throughout the story of God's people in Scripture. It's found all throughout the history of people, and it's even the history of our own nation. By the time we get to the New Testament, there is this hatred between Jewish people and Gentile people, and vice versa. Racism, though, is a learned trait. It's something that has to be taught at a very early age to ingrain it in you to live in that ignorance. In our country, the main problem we've had is between black and white people. One of our children and youth minister's sons, Max, when he was three, he brought home a book about Martin Luther King Jr. And Tony, our youth minister, read it to him. Max surprised his mom, Cheryl, when he started talking about the book because Max's two best friends when he was three were Ian and Jacoby. One is biracial and one is black, and Max had no idea what either of those terms meant. But after reading the Martin Luther Jr. King book, he told Martin Luther King Jr. book, he told his mom with shock, he said, Mom, do you know that if I had lived way back then, my friends wouldn't have been able to swim in the same swimming pool with me? We wouldn't have been able to eat at the same ice cream shop. But because of Martin Luther King Jr., we can go swimming and have fun together and eat at the same ice cream shop anytime we want. And what Max doesn't know is it wasn't way back when, it wasn't way back then when was, this was happening. Jim Crow laws were still in effect in our country 60 years ago, where separate bathrooms and separate meeting places and separate pools was the norm. And the Civil War and slavery ended only 155 years ago and helped put that short period of time in perspective. It was only two months ago, May 31st, 2020, that Irene Triplett, 90 years old, passed away. She was the last American descendant receiving Civil War pension. It wasn't that long ago. That's why our country is still battling this racial tension where people are living and teaching ignorant, unknown, not true thoughts and attitudes. But it doesn't matter what country we would live in, and it doesn't matter what period of time we would live in, because racism would still be present. In the early church 2,000 years ago, within the first year of the first church starting, racism reared its ugly head, where the believers, even among the believers, racism was happening. Acts chapter 6 describes a period of time where Greek-speaking believers were racist against Hebrew-speaking believers doesn't matter what day we live in, racism is here unless we combat it. I found this quote as I was preparing for this message. I'd like to read the whole quote to you, but it's kind of a long quote, so I need you to hang with me just a little bit. Here it is, I quote, Unseen and unfelt racism is seldom experienced by those of us who are white, so sometimes white people view black people as being overly sensitive about the issue. We ask, why does every issue have to be defined by race? Or we say, if the media would just quit stirring it up, it will eventually take care of itself. Or white people will sometimes say, black people now have equal opportunity, so why are they still having the victim mentality? I continue. Do you know something that really helped me as I was reading about this subject? It's to understand that racism is a term used differently by blacks and whites. Most white people describe racism in terms of extreme action. 
When there's a burning cross in somebody's yard or when a policeman uses the N-word, that's racism. Everything short of that is labeled bigotry or prejudice or just being comfortable with our own kind. But when black Americans use the term racism, the word usually covers a broad spectrum. Any action on the part of a white person that is different because it's directed at a black person can be racist. And any attitude that lessens a black person's self-worth is racist. To a black American, racism just equals racism. Degree differentials are only a trick to avoid facing the reality of it, end quote. That quote I read, almost verbatim, was written 22 years ago in a sermon about racism. It's the same conversation we're having today in 2020 that the preacher was having in 1998. Because the conversation is the, ch- is the same, that quote fits today as it did 20 years ago, as it did 50 years ago. Because the conversation's the same, it shows that we have a lot further way to go and a lot more work to do. No matter what time period you're in, no matter what country you live in, there's going to be racism that must be fought with truth and love. Tony Evans said, racism isn't a bad habit and it's not a mistake. It is a sin. And the answer is not sociology, it's theology. That's the beauty of following Christ. When we commit our life to Christ, we commit our whiteness to Christ or we commit our blackness to Christ. We are committing our whole selves to Christ. And it doesn't matter what color you are, you can live by the creed, love keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't matter what nationality you are, you can live by the actions of turn the other cheek. It doesn't matter what language you speak, you can live knowing that God can redeem all that He allows through the power of Jesus on the cross and His resurrection. Would you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12? The Romans that we have in our Bible was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to several house churches that lived in Rome 2,000 years ago, and he wrote to churches that were battling a race problem. The Jewish believers who lived in these house churches were battling out with the Gentile believers in Christ who lived in these house churches. And it had a lot more to do with assumptions and in-group bias and ignorance that they were fighting over. But Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote this letter that not only to encourage those believers, but a letter that trains them in truth And if they were to take it to heart and obey it, it would change their lives and combat the racism they were experiencing. It's the same thing for for us today. Because it was inspired by God, it still applies to us. And if we listen to these words teaching us to act like Jesus Christ, we will be able to combat racism in our community. We'll be able to combat uh, group bias in our community. And we'll be able to combat ignorance in our community because we will be acting in love and truth. We'll get rid of the us versus them mentality that is found no matter what part of the country or no matter what year you live in. Paul writes four areas in chapter 12 and 13 we can be like Christ to combat racism. And if you're taking notes, this is what you want to write down. You want to write down bless, empathize, pursue peace, and love. Four areas to combat the us versus them mentality that was with our people 2,000 years ago and is with Christians even today. Number one is blessed. It's found in Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Now here's what it says. Romans chapter 12, verse 14. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, if we had read just a few verses earlier in this chapter, we would have seen that Paul had already explained what it means to provide a blessing to someone. In verse 10, he said, Be devoted to one another out of love. And he follows that up with, Honor one another above yourselves. Miles McPherson, in his book, The Third Option, said that we need to look for the image of God in other people. Every person is made in the image of God. So if we start looking for the image of God in them and start thinking uh, consciously about the fact that every person is born, made in the image of God, we start treating them with honor and start devoting to them in love because how we treat that person is how we treat Christ. This is why the commands to Romans 2,000 years ago is so um, effective in battling racism today. We're just honoring people who are God image bearers everywhere we go. Verse 13 continues, share with the Lord's people who are in need. And we need to mention that the reason why Christians are commanded, don't be lazy, go seek employment, get a job, is so that we can earn money and share with those who need it and be able to give back and help those who are in need. Share with those in need. Verse 13, practice hospitality. Also verse 13. Now, we really need to look at this because practicing hospitality is not being a host. If you live in a home like I do, where you have to frantically clean and vacuum and make sure the the, the dishes are done and the sink is clean before anyone can come into your house, then you're not practicing hospitality. You're practicing being a host because you want it to look like you never have dishes in your sink and the vacuum uh, floor is always vacuumed and there's no dust on anything. But when you're practicing hospitality, what you're doing is you are looking for people who are in need and you're inviting them into your mess so that you can share love with them. And the people who are in need that you're inviting into the dinner table, they don't care what your house looks like because you're feeding them. And they don't care whether their dish is in the sink because you're loving on them. This is practicing hospitality. One preacher I listened to last week said that almost all Christians celebrate that end-time picture in Revelation where every nation, tribe, and tongue is gathered around the throne. He said, we all celebrate that, but we have a whole lot of trouble right now today gathering around the kitchen table. Well, part of it is in-group bias, and some of it might be racism, but sometimes it's just pride of trying to be a host instead of of offering hospitality. But we're commanded to fight ignorance and hatred and racism, to offer hospitality. That's a command. Because when we invite somebody into our home and we eat with them and we sit around the table and eat with them, we build a bond around the food. It's the strangest thing, but it happens where we become glued together in love. So we're commanded to practice hospitality. One of the reasons we don't practice this as much, uh, Miles McPherson mentioned in his book, The Third Option. I encourage everybody to buy that book and read it. There's so many valuable insights that he gave me in understanding the racial tension that I don't even see. But one of the things he said is that every in-group, every group that we're a part of, practices in-group bias, and we'll do that with anybody we're associated with. And because we have in-group bias, we also have out-group bias. 
And he mentions in the book, uh, he was a football player. So when he runs into hockey players, he knows what football players are like, but he doesn't know what hockey players are like. So he has an in-group bias toward football players. He has an out-group bias toward hockey players. This happens in every group we associate with. And he says nine things show up for in-group bias. Now, I'm going to go through these quickly. If you are watching online, you can pause the video because it'll be on the screen. If you're here in the room, you'll have to write really fast because I'm going to go through it quickly. So I encourage you to buy the book and know them. But here's what he says happened when we're in group bias. I'm more comfortable with those like me. It's a bias when you're in the in group. I'm more inclined to spend time with those like me. I'm more patient with those like me. I give the benefit of the doubt quicker to those like me. I express more grace when mistakes are made by those like me. It's easier to communicate with those like me. I assume I will get along easier with those like me. I'm more willing to go out of my way to help those like me. And I possess more positive assumptions about those like me. Well, because we have in-group bias, what happens is when we meet somebody outside our group, we don't give them the same nine bias. We give them the opposite. We don't think we're going to communicate with somebody not in our in-group as well, so we stop communicating. We don't offer the same grace or the same patience or the same um, uh, positive assumptions about people in our out-group. Well, anytime we don't offer the same grace or the same patience to anybody, we're not acting like Christ. We have to take our in-group bias and start turning them outward to anybody we come in contact with. And if we're looking at, like, at them like they're in the image of God, we'll be able to do that more easily. And this happens no matter what part of group we're in. And it happens even if you're not racist. But, but when it's between a football player and a hockey player, or if you're a Euchre card player and you have an outgroup of Texas Hold'em players, you're going to show these bias. It's no problem when that happens. But there is a problem when it happens because we're a different color skin. If you're only ever around people in your in-group and you have in-group bias and you can't help but have out-group bias, you may not be racist and it may not be nefarious. It may not be evil but it may come across as racist. It might come across as ignorance. And that's what it is, a lack of knowledge. But if we're going to bless people, we have to be able to admit and recognize that we have in-group bias, no matter what group we're in. And so Paul says, bless them and act like Christ. Honor people like they possess, because they do, the image of God. Invite people to your table, practice hospitality, and give whatever outgroup you meet the same in-group bias blessings. One last thing about this blessing before we move on. The word in the Greek there has to do with giving somebody honor with your words. We bless people with our words. We have to speak well of them. If you have ever been part of a conversation that involved a racist joke or had racial overtones that used phrases like, all of them are like this, and you didn't say anything, then you weren't blessing somebody with your mouth and you weren't acting like Christ. If you've ever been a part of a conversation where you said something like, all of them are lazy, or on the other side you said, all of them are out to get you, then you're not blessing somebody with your words. You're not acting like Christ. And you may not be racist, but those are racist actions. We have to speak well of 
other people, especially if they're not in our outgroup. And we must do it from the heart. Psalm 62, 4 says, with their mouths they bless, but with their heart they curse. No, we have to actually be looking for the image of God and others to love them. We have to bless people. And in verse 15, he says, we also need to empathize with people. This is uh, the verse, what 15, verse 15 out of chapter 12 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And that's really where the statement Black Lives Matter comes into play. When we see our brothers or sisters hurting, we should go to them and help them. And when you make a declaration, Black Lives Matter, what you're doing is you're saying, I see somebody who's hurting and I'm declaring I'm willing to help them. Now, I recognize that the organization Black Lives Matter in their organization and in uh, the Black Lives Matter organization, they make claims and demands within that organization that is anti-God and anti-Christ. And there are people who are connected to Black Lives Matter organization who have no idea that the organization is anti-God and anti-Christ, but what they're doing is they're declaring they're willing to help somebody in need. And there are people who are making the declaration, Black Lives Matter, who have no idea there's an organization that even exists. What they're just doing is they're declaring, I see somebody in pain and hurting, and I'm willing to help them. And if we are going to combat racism and act like Jesus Christ, we must be willing to be misunderstood too. The declaration, Black Lives Matter, by itself, will not stop racism. But it may give one of our brothers and sisters in Christ encouragement to know that we are willing to help them when they're in pain. Chip Murdoch, one of our black members of our church, I was having a conversation with him. I said, Chip, when was the first time you experienced racism? He said he was in Cincinnati. He was on a little league football team. And his mom was late to pick him up. And he said this truck drove by. It was full of people who looked at this small, vulnerable kid that they could pick on. And as they drove by, they yelled racial things at him, and it scared him. What do you do when you see somebody hurting and scared? Well, they matter. You go and you help them. I received a Facebook post about uh, how to battle sex trafficking in Ohio. And apparently there's a day, a national day, that everybody kind of joins together and we fight sex trafficking together. And I've reposted that post because we should battle sex trafficking. You know, nowhere in my comments has it said that all sex workers matter. Why? Because there is a people group that are hurting, that are in pain, and we're reaching out to help them. I post on my social media account all the time Post about anti-abortion. Abortion takes lives. Abortion kills people. And nowhere in any of the comments has anybody ever said, well, you know what? All babies' lives matter. But for some reason, there is a real hesitation to notice our brothers and sisters in pain and say black lives matter without for some reason saying, well, all lives matter. Saying black lives matter doesn't discredit all lives matter there's just a select people group that are in pain that need help are we willing to be misunderstood to let our brothers and sisters know that we are willing to help them that we are willing to mourn with them when they mourn and weep when they weep with them when they weep this is what 
Christ did. This is how Christ lived. He saw that we were in pain and in need, and he left heaven and came to us. The reason many Christians will not say Black Lives Matter is because they are fearful they'll be linked to the organization that is anti-Christ. Proverbs says, it's dangerous to be concerned about what other people think about you, but if you trust the Lord, you will be safe. It is a snare and a trap to worry about man's opinion versus God's opinion. Paul was accused of being out of his mind as he went to help people in the name of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13, he says, if we're out of our mind, as some say, it is for God, and if we're in our right mind, it's for you. Daryl Davis has led indirectly 200 people out of the clan to stop racism and stop hatred, all because he loves them and he's willing to be misunderstood. He's been accused of being a sellout, and he's even been accused of helping the KKK in their agenda. Now, how can a black man who is leading people out of the KKK be accused of helping the KKK with their agenda? Because he's willing to be misunderstood to show the love of Christ. And so as he befriends KKK leaders, he acts like Christ to them. One KKK leader he befriended, his car broke down, and Daryl Davis helped him fix his car. And then that leader drove to a KKK rally with the car Daryl helped fix. One uh, KKK leader was taking a whole group of the Klansmen to a rally and his bus broke down. And Daryl Davis, who had befriended him, said, you can borrow my bus. One KKK leader just recently who opened fire and was charged with assault with a deadly weapon, Daryl Davis posted the bail for him so he could get out. Because he was willing to love and befriend these people. Even if it meant he was being misunderstood, he has led them out of hatred and bigotry because of the love of Christ. Isn't that how Christ acted when he came? He was misunderstood by his own people, but he came to rescue and show love and sacrifice. Are you willing to be misunderstood to stand up for what is right? Paul was, and God used him to write 13 books out of the New Testament, and he's still blessing people to this day. Daryl was, and he's still leading people to truth out of love to this day. What difference would we make if we just say we're willing to help where anybody is hurting? Because we're going to love like Christ. We have to bless, we have to empathize, and we have to pursue peace. Chapter 12, verse 16, all the way to chapter 13, verse 7, is all about pursuing peace. There's even a section in there about if the government gives you a command you don't like, you obey if it's not calling you to sin because your main purpose under Direction of Christ is to pursue peace. But if we're just talking about racism, can we just, uh, let's just look at 16 through 21 of chapter 12. And I won't get into the government talk, but it's there. Here's what it says as we pursue peace. Verse 16 Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. In Paul's day, when he was writing this, the Jewish Christians were lowest, lower in status in the Roman area than the Gentile Christians. And Paul said, no, no, Gentile Christians, you got to go down to those who are lower status. Being a higher status um, with uh, financially doesn't make you a better person. 
Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. If his car breaks down, you fix it. If his bus breaks down, you loan him yours. If he's in jail, you help pay for the bail. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. That was a phrase used at the time of Rome that said if you respond with love when evil happens, they'll either feel so ashamed and be transformed by your love, they'll come around to your side, or they will feel the wrath of God as he ignites their conscience through your loving action. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Isn't that what Christ did when He died on the cross? One last comment about Daryl Davis. He said, if you spend five minutes, this is a quote from him, with your arch enemy, you'll find you have something in common. And if you spend 10 minutes, you'll find you have something else in common. And the more you have in common and build upon what you have in common, the things that are in contrast, like the color of your skin, begin to matter less. He pursues peace with his actions. And finally, verse thir- uh, chapter 13, 8 through 10, we need to love. This is how we're going to combat ignorance and racism. Verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And what other, whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. We have to love people as ourselves. This is the response to racism. When Jesus gave the greatest commandment and He said, love God your Father with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second command is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He was giving us a command to combat all sorts of evil. Back to Pastor McPherson's book, The Third Option, one way to love someone as a neighbor is to label them neighbor. He said anytime we label somebody as less than, we give ourselves the uh, option to discredit them, to talk bad about them, or to think less of them, or to put them down. But if we label everybody as a brother or sister, we label everybody as a neighbor, we can no longer do that. Some of us need to label the governor of the state as Brother DeWine. Because once he's our brother, we don't talk as bad bad about him. Once we recognize we are united in Christ with him, it's easier to give him the benefit of the doubt. We start giving him our in-group bias. Is that hitting anybody, stepping on anybody's toes? Has anybody said anything bad or wrote anything bad about the governor on Facebook? It's because we haven't labeled him as a neighbor, a brother. It's because we haven't looked at him as an image bearer of God. And if you're speaking poorly of Him, you're disobeying Scripture to bless Him. But this is huge when it comes to racism. As soon as you label someone less than your brother or sister, you create within yourself the opportunity to think less of them. But if they're your brother or your sister, you're more likely to easily 
obey the commands. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit murder. Don't even hate in your heart. Don't even commit lust in your heart. So one of the things that we can do to love is to label people how God labels people. And we'll end up loving how Christ loves. Last thing I want to leave us with is this. We all need to admit that whether we are black or white, that we can say offensive or insensitive things that sound racist. And you don't have to be a racist to do it. But if we're willing to admit that we can say offensive things or say insensitive things, then we can notice when it happens and we can combat that with love. If we treat others as if they were image bearers of God and treat them as we would a brother or sister, then when those racist comments happen or those insensitive comments happen, we can go to them in love gently and confront them with what is true. And when we do that, we'll be letting everybody know that black lives matter. But even as a larger picture, you'll be honoring God with the commands He gave us to live. As we finish up today, we're going to go to a very unifying part of our worship called communion. Jesus knew 2,000 years ago, God knew way before 2,000 years ago, that when we eat together, it changes something chemically in our brains that makes us unite. There was a 2015 Cornell study that uh, studied the behavior of firefighters, those who ate together more often and those who didn't eat together as often. And the ones who ate together more often became more intimate and it spilled over into their work where they were willing to sacrifice themselves more often for those who were in their in-group that ate together. This study said that eating together was like a social glue that didn't happen otherwise. I think Christ knew about that action that would happen within us when we ate together, when he told us, whenever you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. Our glue is Christ, but when we eat the body and drink of the blood of the covenant, it helps remind us that we are one only in Christ. Not by any in-group that we are in, but by his sacrifice that allows us to be in his group. Would you open and take out just the top portion of your bread? And if you're at home, would you get your bread out to be able to eat the body of Christ together with Christians all over the world and even in this room now? And would you eat the bread and remember that Christ sacrificed himself on the cross for you? And would you open the cup? And as you drink the cup, would you remember that His blood was shed for you. It covers over your sin and it makes you whole, uniting yourself to God and to other Christians all over the world. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank You for Your sacrifice on the cross, Your willingness to be misunderstood, to save all that would call You Lord. Lord, we thank You for this time of communion you gave us and commanded us to take part in because it reminds us of the unity we have in Christ. Lord, would you help us to see other people as image bearers of you? 
so that we can invite them in with love and with truth and with gentleness into the same family of God that we are part of. Would you allow us, as we remember that they are image bearers, would you allow us to show them the same in-group bias we have, the same love that we have for one another, to everyone we encounter, as we look to you for our guidance and our strength and the power to do so. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have one invitation and one announcement to make before we leave. The invitation is this. If, if you are stirred by the, the, by the Scripture, if God has put those scriptural seeds in your heart and have been growing faith and even something is springing to life within you right now, would you make that desire that you want to take your next best step known? So if you're online, would you make that desire you want to take a new step for Christ known and put it in the Facebook comments or put it uh, in the email or even send us a text because we want to help you take your next best step to love like Jesus Christ. And if you're in this room, the invitation is always open. If you need to make a next best step, the wisest decision you can make to either put yourself in Christ because you're not united to Him, or maybe you just need to repent and turn around and start living like Christ today, we want to help you do that. Would you find me after the service is over? I'll be at the back door greeting people on the way out. Just make an appointment with me. Uh, Stop me. Let, Let us pray for you and let us figure out what your next best step is so that you can love like Jesus Christ, so that you can be willing to be misunderstood so that other people might be saved. If this message has inspired you or encouraged you, we would love if you shared it with a friend. To help support ministries like this one, go to wcconline.org donate.